Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And so this episode is what I call an author's spotlight. So we've got three, really four authors discussing three books on this episode. And it's these are three books that are really going that I I think are going to be thought provoking and engaging uh, for the readers. And I hope that you support these black authors once you hear this podcast. And I hope that you learn something from these books once you read them. But before we spotlight these authors on this episode, let's go to a moment of news with Grace G. Thanks, Eric. Donald Trump won the first 2024 Republican presidential contest in Iowa with over half the votes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 21 percent and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley at 19 percent trailed behind. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson ended their presidential bids. Congressional leaders agreed on a stopgap spending bill to avoid a partial government shutdown, with the continuing resolution extending funding deadlines through early March. A grand jury in Trumbull County, Ohio, decided not to indict Brittany Watts, a 34-year-old black woman who was charged with abuse of a corpse after having a miscarriage at home. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was released from the hospital after being treated for complications from prostate cancer treatment. The U.S. Justice Department will seek the death penalty against a white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. A former U.S. Marine sergeant charged with manslaughter for killing a homeless man, Jordan Neely, on the New York City subway will face trial after a judge rejected his motion to dismiss the indictment. Dan Marburger, the principal of Perry High School in Iowa, died from injuries sustained during a school shooting earlier in the month. 
A U.S. district judge in Florida ruled that the federal law barring firearms in post offices is unconstitutional. The U.S. House of Representatives voted to repeal a National Labor Relations Board rule that would classify companies as joint employers of many contract and franchise workers. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a case from Grants Pass, Oregon, regarding the enforcement of local laws against homeless persons camping on public property. And an analysis of over 70 studies found that minority children in the U.S. receive universally worse health care than white children, regardless of insurance coverage. I am Grace G., and this has been a Moment of News. All right. Thanks, Grace, for that moment of news. And now, my first guest. Yes, I said guests as in plural because it's a husband and wife team that has written a book called The New Brownies Book. And their names are Dr. Corita Brown and Charlie Palmer. First, Dr. Corita L. Brown. She is a sociologist, professor, oral historian, and public intellectual whose research centers on the ontologies of systemic racism and the fullness of black life. An educator, public speaker, author, and humanist, she is known for empowering her readership, students, and organizations to be active participants in driving equity and justice. Dr. Brown's body of work combines her expertise in data-driven social science research her vast experience in navigating complex global organizations, and her love of the arts. These insights bring actionable and reparative knowledge to the public. Dr. Brown graduated from Uniondale High School in Long Island, New York, and attended Temple University in Philadelphia, where she graduated with a Bachelor's of Business Administration in Risk Management and Insurance. After a six-year career, In the commercial insurance industry, Brown returned to school and subsequently earned a master's in government administration from the University of Pennsylvania and a Ph.D. in sociology from Brown University. She is a professor of sociology at Emory University, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on race and racism, sports and society, and historical archival methods. In addition to her books, her research is published in various peer-reviewed academic journals, such as the uh, the American Journal of Cultural Sociology, Southern Cultures, and the Du Bois Review. Dr. Brown is a Fulbright Scholar, and her international research has been supported by national foundations, such as the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Hellman Fellows Fund. Brown currently serves on the board of the Obama Presidency Oral History Project. She has been featured in such media outlets as Politico, Forbes, the LA Times, Sports Illustrated, and WUNC. Literary agent Serendipity represents her for book projects and Knowledge Arts Holdings manages her speaking engagements. Now her husband, Charlie Palmer. Charlie Palmer is known for saying art should change the temperature in a room, and for more than 30 years, his art has spoken for itself. In every painting, Palmer bears witness to African ancestry and contemporary experiences, rhythmic, visual stories that shift what each viewer believes. As a fine artist who paints upwards of 50 paintings a year, 
He has an innate awareness of documenting the intricacies of blackness with depth, patterns, symbols, and textures. By existing at the intersection of creative expression and the black experience, and accepting the guidance of his ancestors, he creates, authors, and magnifies the truth and depth of blackness. From loose sketches and tight lines to blocks of color and nuances of mixed media, his art manifests in visual expressions to the questions, what came before and what truth must be told. Palmer was selected by John Legend in 2020 to create a cover portrait for his Grammy Award-winning Bigger Love album. He was also commissioned by Time Magazine to create the cover art and illustrations for their America Must Change July 2020 issue based on his 20 years experience painting on the subject of race. Since 2021, Palmer has served as creative director for the Los Angeles Lakers in the paint, a competitive annual art programming program recognizing LA-based BIPOC artists. He also created the cover of the NBA 75th Anniversary Edition 2K22 video game. Most recently, Palmer's work has expanded to the metaverse with original NFTs for several Time Magazine timepieces collections and a Kayvon Thibodeau NFT football collectible. His books, book illustrations include The Legend of Gravity, There's a Dragon in My Closet, Rainy Day Rocket Ship, I Can Write the World, All Boys Are Blue, and Mama Africa, a children book, children's book chronicling the life of Miriam McCabe, for which he received the 2018 Coretta Scott King John Steptoe New Talent Award. In 2023, Charlie has been noted the notable Wisconsin Author, illustrator for youth literature, created the 47th U.S. Postal Stamp in the Black History, Black Heritage series that honors Constance Baker Motley, and also co-authored the new Brownies book, which has articles that have been featured in multiple media platforms like the New York Times, CNN, Black Enterprise, and many more. Dr. Brown and illustrator Palmer live in Atlanta, Georgia along with their two pugs, Pugsley in blue. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest or guests on this program, Dr. Corita L. Brown and her husband and co-author, Charlie Palmer. All right, Dr. Corita Brown, how you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm doing real good today. Well, I'm I'm glad to have you, and I see that you brought a chaperone with you. You want to introduce him? <laughs> I sure do. Um, I'm delighted to be here, Eric. Thank you for having us. Um, so today it is um, myself and my collaborate collaborator, co-producer, and my husband, my boot thing, Charlie Palmer. The um, Black American artist, and I dare say, an American treasure. Hey, brother, how you doing? Man, it's a pleasure, Eric. Just joining you. I'm I'm curious, like if you as you prepped us for us, like okay, go ahead. I mean, I I, I always appreciate um, difficult questions that make us pause for a moment. 
but we're in, like I say right now, we're in the year of the cat, Cat Williams. That's okay. true. <laughs> talk true. We talk about what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and what's important to us. And so I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you came on as a bonus. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad that I deferred to Dr. Brown for the introduction because I don't think I would have introduced you like that. All right, guys. So let's get into it. Um, What I normally like to do is start off with a quote. And it's either something that is related to the work that uh, people are doing, or it's something that uh, the guest might have said or written in a book. So your quote is, children learn more from what you are than what you teach. Who wants to take that one? Hmm. Uh-huh. Baby, do you want it? I do, because when you said that, spiritually, I felt the long tradition of Black educators who created their own pedagogy, especially during times of segregation and even during slavery, that uh um legacy of ours of our teachers being the role models and embodying what it meant to be a part of a community what it meant to be a citizen what it meant to be a black person what it meant to be a creative or a genius that's a part of our pedagogical tradition so i can i can get with that but uh you're going to learn today in these books too so yes what the teacher um um, embodies, but there's just so much that you get from from study and from literacy and from art. And that's one thing that I just love about being an educator is putting the education in students' hands. All right. So Doc, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. Explain to the listeners the history of the original Brownies book. Sure. So um, the original Brownies book was the first children's magazine that centered black children as the focus of a matter of joy and consequence. This magazine was uh, co-founded by none other than the good Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, during the time that he was the editor in chief of the crisis magazine with the NAACP. And he um, created the Brownies book as an offshoot of the crisis, a magazine that would be geared towards black children. Um, And this magazine ran for about a year and a half. He helped fund it with his own money. Um, He couldn't sustain it. So that's why it was only in publication for such a short time. But this magazine was phenomenal. He didn't just write all the columns himself, what he would do along with his team. They reached out to folks who we now consider literati of the Harlem Renaissance and say, hey, um, uh, um, uh, Nella Larson or Michael Burley or even Langston Hughes, send us a piece of your best work, of original work, so our children may know that they are thought about and loved. And he would take those contributions and curate the magazine every month. And that became the Brownies book. And it was just full of art, photography, poetry, short stories, plays, everything that you'd want to imagine, um, all produced by Black creatives. So this book is 
uh, magazine is really a part of our heritage when it comes to, you know, the history of black literature and literacy. All right. So, Brother Palmer, why did y'all feel that it was time to create a new version of the Brownies book? And quite honestly, Eric, I, I think it's an it's an old version, but contemporary. Uh, we felt there was a, there's still a need to let the children of the sun know that they are loved, that they are magic, that they are power, that they are uh, um, that we are as adults assured that the the uh, relay will continue. Um, and so we kind of like during the time of the pandemic, we sat like many people wondering what should we do? And we did not want to twiddle our, our thumbs and sit around and wait for it to be over with, not knowing if it was ever going to be. And so we have very dear to our heart, Karita and myself, a love for us. You know, we say everything black, blackity, blackity black. And that's really how we stand on. And like that, that earlier quote, it's like I have never consciously thought about moving by example, uh, I, 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 but I, I've always moved by example. I hear often how people have uh, uh, have looked at me as a, a reference point for what they dream to be. And I take that very seriously, especially when it comes to uh, our community. And so we wanted to get that message out to them and let them know parents, and children uh, of the sun that you are amazing and we love you. Now, the, the collaboration on the book is that both of you are editors, but uh, Brother Palmer, you contributed primarily the art. Either you, you kind of used the same strategy, either you drew something or submitted something and you got other artists to submit things as well. And so, it, it, again, it was very much a collaboration because Krita and myself are also collectors. And so we collect art from other artists. And so it was very much like Karita initially would say that that uh, the boys beg people uh, to be a part of this or ask them. And I'm like, you know what, when the good doctor or somebody, of a, one of our contemporaries was like, give me a call today and say, Charlie, I want you to be a part of this. I have a mentor like that. If he calls me and asks me to do it, I'm not going to say no. And so it's like we had artists that we knew and we both had writers that we knew, but mostly it was Karita that brought in most of the writers. But it was a combination of what we thought would fit. And quite honestly, it all fit together so seamlessly. Yeah, I mean, uh, the new Brownies book is comprised of 50 contributors from 50 Black artists and authors. And I just think that's phenomenal. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's an awesome concept. Um, and it's something that uh, I'm glad that you two decided to highlight. Uh, I think when I was younger, I might have heard of the Brownies book. But, you know, it all depends on what stage of my youth it was. Because it was like high school, college, and it's a Brownies book. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I want to read that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know if that's a positive connotation, but then when you hear the history, it's like, oh, okay, all right, it was our book. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something that the other folks put out about us, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. So, Dr. Brown, why, why is there a chapter dedicated to Langston Hughes in the book? What is the significance of that? Oh, so there is a chapter called 
Young Langston. And it's a tribute and a homage to Langston Hughes, who, um, fun fact, had his very first publication published in the Brownies book. He sent some of his early work to Dr. Du Bois to take a look at. You got to think about that. Like, as a young man, and Langston Hughes is about 18 around this time, he thought enough of himself to send samples of his work to the most important Black intellectual of his time. And Du Bois read it and thought that it was uh, worthy of publication. And Langston got his start in the Brownies book and later in the crisis and other publications. So uh, one thing that was really important from a literary standpoint was to make sure that the public had access to those early works. Even uh, many Langston Hughes scholars haven't seen some of these pieces. So we published all of Langston's poems one short play and a few short stories that he published in the original Brownies book. We've re-published uh, them in the new Brownies book. Yeah, I, I think that's cool. You know, I, I, um, you know, and that's why I wanted the, the backstory to be told because, you know, I, the equivalent in my generation was Prince, right? That, you know, he was like 17 or 18 and he just showed up at Warner Brothers Studios and performed for the board of directors. You know what I'm saying? And said, OK, y'all going to sign me or what? So, you know, that's empowering for young people to know that you don't have to wait till you start getting gray hairs or you get your education, you know, finish your education to get started. You can start living your dream right now if you feel that you have that capability to do that. And I think that's an important message for our children, as y'all referred to them, and, and, and Dr. Boyd referred to them as children of the sun. All right, so what is what was behind the concept of the Shiro's chapter? Mm, um, so the Shiro's chapter was the very last chapter to be included in the book, and it wasn't Charlie... Charlie's idea nor mine, we had um, uh, several HBCU interns who worked with us during the uh, um, editorial portion phase of the book. And a young woman named Chase Malone, who was then a freshman at Spelman College, she worked with us for the summer. And she looked through the final um, you know, draft of the manuscript before we were going to submit it to the publisher. And she stopped us and said, uh, <laughs> there needs to be something in this book that really uh, highlights the contributions of Black women, because Black women are too often, you know, sidelined or erased from uh, history. And we looked at each other and said, you know what, you're right, but <laughs> we got to turn this thing in. So, Chase, if you'd like to see that represented in the book, you come up with a list of women. You do some research, and she did just that. So she composed that list of the 26 women that you see represented in that chapter. And then Charlie sketched each of them so we can see them and guess who they are. And uh, uh, then Chase uh, created a, a quiz at the end to kind of just make sure that we can lock that into, into our knowledge base. But that chapter is incredibly important. And shout out to Chase Malone for uh, pushing us to do that. Yeah, because it, it's totally different as a way as composed compared to the rest of the book. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, 
how that was done. And of course, one of the one of the sisters that you highlight is Shirley Chisholm, uh, who, you know, as a young man growing up and wanting to be in politics, uh, she was uh, an amazing figure. And the older I have gotten, the more uh, I appreciate what she did. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if y'all, it's like she's, they've been featuring her in different storylines and I forget the name of the, I think it's uh, Ms. America or something like that. One of the, it was a show that was on FX where they actually had a character, a, a you know, followed, uh, she was a major part of the storyline. And I think that mm-hmm. helped a lot of people. So uh, I appreciate, thank you, Chase, wherever you are. Thank you for uh, yeah, you, you, thinking about you, that. I don't know if you're following, but I saw the other day and I was like, oh, perfect casting that Regina King is going to be playing her in a movie. And I saw a picture, I'm like, that's Shirley Chisholm. Well, that's not Shirley Chisholm. That, that is Regina. And so it's like, I know she's going to kill it. But oh, yeah. Everybody needs to know more about this woman because she was absolutely amazing. Yeah, she was a trailblazer. Her, because uh, I had a conversation with another person about black women in politics, and I was just, you know, Shirley Chisholm. I grew up Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan, uh, mm-hmm. Yolanda Birthway uh, uh, Burke, uh, and I'm probably mispronounced her name, but it, you know, it was like Braithway Burke. I mean, but it, it, you know, that was always kind of a thing. I, it's like how powerful these women are. Uh, and then, of course, you know, now we're learning about Ella Baker and Diane Nash and mm-hmm. all those, all those sisters mm-hmm. too. So, you know, I, 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 again, Chase, thank you for being thoughtful yeah. about that. All I right, so the, go ahead, Charlie. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, one of the ones that I really, I, I added was uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. She, she's always been one of my heroes. I just thought there was amazing bravery when it came to her being down South and willing to take, uh, being, and, you know, being uh, falsely accused and put in jail and beaten and all these things, but never giving up. And so we have so many of those heroes out there in the world. And her legacy is more like a, um, you know, in, in football, we talk about coaching trees. And she had a, a tree where, you know, a lot of people that I ran across uh, being in politics in Mississippi, you know, were her uh, mentees. I mean, you know, her, her, her apprentices. Uh, you know, whether it was a college professor of mine or somebody I worked with on a particular campaign or whatever, she left an incredible legacy of of young people, men and women, that she empowered. And a lot of people don't talk about that outside of Mississippi. So I'm glad you brought her up on that. And Well, and in speaking about education, I do have a bone to pick with y'all. So yeah. it says in the school days chapter, I get the emphasis on Fisk University. Um, <laughs> but how did you leave out Jackson State, man? How did you leave Jackson State? You, you put Tougaloo up there before, and that, that, the first school in Mississippi came to your mind was Tougaloo, not Jackson State University. Really? <laughs> really? No, seriously. Hey, talk- <laughs> we leave a call to action in that chapter where we say, okay, I'm going to name these 10, but I need you to go name me 10 more. So, you know, we leave the door open for folks to discover <laughs> other HBCUs. I hear you. I I, I, I said I was going to have fun with that one. Um, but uh, it, it's... I, it, when we were 
when we were choosing the 10, I said, there is no way to, that for us to avoid this smoke on this. Like, oh, <laughs> I, I know the Aggies gonna come for me. It's gonna be, you know, Bowie State, every, everybody's gonna come for, come for this. But the point is HBCUs are so important. It's important for uh, not only black youth, but black parents to be having these discussions with their kids as they're thinking about their college dreams, um, that they have an awareness of not only that HBCUs exist, they're different ones, public and private, small mm -hmm. and large, urban and rural. Understand the landscape of them and go visit these schools. Go to those homecomings. See if you can see yourself at these institutions that have propelled Black excellence for uh, uh, damn near since the Civil War. Yeah, and 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 you know my experience. I grew up in Chicago, and when I told my parents I was going to Jackson State, my dad was originally born in Mississippi, and he was like, "Really? I thought you were going to go to Ivy League school." And I did get accepted to one, but Jackson State, you know, and my mom went to West Virginia State, so. I had actually entertained going there too, but, um, you know, Jackson state offered me, uh, as in the Godfather, an offer I couldn't refuse. I mean, I had a full mm. scholarship, everything, wow. even my books were paid for. And mm. so, you know, I naturally jumped on that and, uh, best decision I ever made in my life because, you know, it's one thing growing up in Chicago as a young kid, and and being around black people uh but to go to a, a historically black college to go to a football game and, and and you know growing up in chicago you would you sold your field right and it's like number white folks out there in the cold mm -hmm. by the lake and <laughs> and it's like so when you go to a football game a college football game you see sixty thousand black people at a college football game. It's amazing. And so real fast forward, real quick, when they started doing the Circle City Classic in Indianapolis, Jackson State, I think, played South Carolina State one year. And so I took my dad to that one because he had never, you know, I'd always talked about Jackson State, but he had never attended a Jackson State game. And so when he got to feel the whole experience, including the halftime, he looked at me and he said, and that's why you wanted to stay down in Mississippi. That's why you that's why you like Jackson State. I said, I told you. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's the most unique experience in American academics. Mm. And and it's really a blessing. And so it's really important in a book that's geared toward black children to make sure that we highlight the value and 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 I like the way that y'all did it with you had like a an old uh I, I want to say old, but, you know, somebody that went to Fisk like in the 1920s and then you had somebody like 100 years later had students, you know, relating experience. And that 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 not only shows the connectivity, but the longevity of these institutions. They, they, they've been around, like you said, uh, Dr. Brown, since the, you know, the Civil War. And so it's important for our kids to know that we have something of quality and you ain't got to deal with all this drama that's going on now with Harvard and Penn and all these other places that you've got a safe haven to learn. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad y'all did that. 
Now, I want to know, what was the motivation behind selecting the Little King's poem in the book? That poem, first of all, that poem is so fire. <laughs> that's, that's Frank X. Walker, yeah. poet extraordinaire, co-founder of the Afrolatian Poets, former poet laureate of the state of Kentucky. And when we reached out to Frank to ask so humbly if he would be willing to submit a piece to the Brownies book, he sent us two. And we we're just ever grateful for that. But Lil King's is a piece that was, um, it, he says it's an homage to the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which was formative for him. Um, but the poem, and you've got to read it if you haven't yet for folks listening, it is kind of putting Dr. King, if if Dr. King were more like Tupac, mm-hmm. instead of instead of, you know, suited and booted as a civil rights activist in the in the way he showed up, would you still be able to hear his message? Would you still be able to um, uh, revere him as a king if he, you know, if he didn't have that presentation of self? Um, he has so many references to hip hop and street culture in that poem, and it's so powerful. Um, I think it's, it's one of the best showings in the entire rap. I, th- I think that uh, also uh, we, when we made our ask, we had no demands. And I think that's one of the things that if you look at this book, it wasn't like, give us something black. We said, give us your best, whatever that might be, whether it's an art piece or a poem. And we, we had one professor who we we're very surprised wrote poetry that we didn't know wrote poetry. And it's an opening in the book, it's a uh, uh, Dr. Marcus Anthony Hunter, uh, Children of the Sun. It's a powerful intro into what you're about to experience. But it was like he said, I tapped into my poetry as as Carita did, and or I did. I never considered myself a writer, and I contribute, I think, two stories to it. But it was like, what is coming from you right now? What do you want to share with the world? Yeah, and uh, I mean, when I read that, I was like, wow. But it also reminded me of the fact that, you know, Dr. King was basically Tupac's age when he mm. when he really got started. Mm-hmm. And and he was some of the stuff that he did to get people to show up at these meetings. Uh, you could say for that time it was a little Tupac-esque, uh, <laughs> you know, going to hustling people in pool halls and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? But. Yeah, it's an incredible perspective. And that's that's the beauty of, you know, our culture, especially from a literature standpoint. And it just, you know, just reminds us of the of the creatives that we have out there and 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 what creativity art is supposed to be is supposed to be thought provoking. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I I greatly appreciated that. And, And which leads me to this question. What was each one of you, what was y'all's favorite entry in the book? Oh, don't do, don't do us like that. (laughs) Well, let me, let me, let me, let me phrase it this way. When you were (laughs) getting stuff in and, you know, you were looking at different material to put into the book, what piece said, Oh, we got to, we got to put this in. What what was your we gotta have it in Dr. Brown and and Brother Palmer? What what was yours? 
Um, you know, for me, one of the ones that really resonates is, and it led, it, it, it came from a conversation, I don't want to be black anymore. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it, and it's kind of a departure from almost anything else in the book because it's a comic strip. But it literally happened to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Keith Cross, where his daughter is watching, you know, the, the, the killing of, you know, George Floyd and a couple of other things that occurred around that time and got really frightened, this child recognizing they're targeting us. And so when he shared it with me, I, I'm like, you know what? Give me a comic strip. Uh, and him and his wife, Shannon, put that together. And it's like, we need to tell these stories because I'm a child, I'm a product of the 60s, born in 1960. And I would hope that my grandchildren wouldn't have to deal with what I dealt with growing up. But the truth is that they are. And so it's like, let's address these things. Let's be real about it. Let's talk about it. So that one resonates with me. Mine is My Mama's Sick by Ida Harris. Um, so there's a whole chapter uh, dedicated to the theme of death and dying in the Brownies book. We thought that was important because it's a part of the human experience. And remember, we were putting this thing together during the pandemic where that was an acute feature of our times. And we wanted kids to have an outlet to be able to open up this conversation and for parents to be able to open up conversation with their kids about it. So Ida Harris submits this piece called My Mama Sick. And I remember sitting in the editorial room with my Fisk interns. There were five of them and myself. And we, we read the piece together and it was so quiet in the room, you could hear a rat licking ice at the end of that piece because it left you perplexed. It left you um, uh, um, with a resounding sense of sorrow, um, 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 comfort for some, um, but that piece just hits all the emotional channels. But it also is a cliffhanger because you don't know if the mother actually passes away or if there's a you know there's a, another possibility in the ending and it's left to the reader's interpretation and imagination so i just thought that that very short piece was so powerful um and is so necessary because i know as a child i i lost all my grandparents by the time i was 10 years old i didn't know how to express mourning or grief or how I was feeling. And my parents didn't know how to breach that conversation with me. So I, I think that piece is, is amazing, amazingly written, but it's, it's so important for what it can also do. Yeah. Um, so mine outside of the little Kings was uh, nobody loves the devil. I thought that was cute. <laughs> I kind of like that one. And, uh, that really Charlie. That's a true story. story. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yes, sir. Um, What do y'all want to want readers of the book to take away from it? What, what, what's the mission? What, what do you, what do you want your audience, whether it's adults or children to take away? You know, so we we say, uh, because you say it on, you see it on the, the front cover that this is a love letter to black families, but this is really a love letter to families. And for those on the outside looking in to our stories, 
it is in ways it's so relatable. You know, it is our focus on um, black folk, but it's like that's why we loved when we reached out to these artists. We didn't say make it black, um, but our blackness is going to show up in so many different beautiful, powerful ways. We want uh, I want families to sit down together and share some of these stories and talk about them. Uh, and I want that. I told Karita, I want this to be on every black uh, family's coffee table in the world. So that's all I want. That's a, that's a modest uh, a dream. <laughs> For me, you know, the, the new Brownies book is already doing what it was supposed was what it's supposed to do. Me and Charlie, I truly believe, were called by the ancestors especially the OG, Dr. Du Bois, to make sure that to bring this thing back into the world. Um, we don't take ownership over the idea. We revived, you know, a, a piece of our own, a, a piece of literary history that belongs to all of us. And we did our job with honor and diligence. And, it, you know, this book was, is, has been years in the making for us to steward. So I feel like we've done our part. What is my dream for the Brownies book. I want families to actually activate the book. So yes, enjoy the stories, but there's so much that you can then uh, do with it to, you know, um, to just further your own curiosity and learning through a black lens. So again, with that school days chapter, I want you, I want families to then challenge themselves to say, let's hit up five HBCUs this year and do a cross country tour. I want Black children to have exposure to the poetic literary canon from Langston and um, Christine Brown, who also has a poem, a poet from the 1920s, up to Zoe Jones, who was four years old when she submitted her poem uh, to the Brownies book. So they can see this, um, that we have a trajectory that we come from someplace, that we have a deep reservoir of black genius. And if that is so, what is your genius, young man or young woman? And just go forth and be brilliant. Don't wait. All right. So let's 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 make uh, Brother Palmer's um modest dream come true. How can people get in touch with you all? How can people get the book? Go ahead and, and plug it away. That could be you, babe. You know what? You can you can pretty much pick it up in any bookstore. Uh, you can also go to um, to Amazon. You can order it there. If it was an editor's pick uh, on that, and it was also featured in a couple of other major publications, including the New York Times. But you can go online uh, and Amazon pick it up, or or like I said, most bookstores carry it. And you just type in the new Brownies book, a love letter to Black families edited by Dr. Carita Brown and Charlie Palmer. And again, yeah, anywhere online where books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, Target, Amazon, beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, you name it. <laughs> um, and we promise you, you won't be disappointed, not only for its substance, but I don't know if, if you could co-sign this, Eric, but the book is just beautiful. It is a beautiful book. I, I hate that is that we're just audio for this particular reason, but it's a beautiful artwork, Brother Palmer. You did a good job in in, in curating and contributing to it. Um, 
Dr. Brown, Brother Palmer, I thank y'all for coming on the show. I appreciate it, and I, and I wish you much success. And I really do hope that that goal of being in every every household, every black household for sure, comes true for y'all. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of literature, and you can tell that uh, your heart and your soul was was put into it. So thank you for your contribution, and thank you for coming on the show. Well, we thank you for your time, man. Thank you for even having an interest. Uh, I, I don't know where you're at. Where Where are you located? So I'm in Atlanta. Oh, okay. You're oh. Here. We got to get together some. You know we're in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yes, sir. I appreciate that. And yeah, uh, when I'm not podcasting or working, we'll see if we can make that happen. <laughs> Sounds great. All right, guys. And we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. And so now it's time for my next guest. And that is Juliet Hooker. Juliet Hooker is Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science. She is a political theorist specializing in racial justice, black political thought, Latin American political thought, democratic theory, and contemporary political theory. She has also written on racism and Afro-descendant and indigenous politics in Latin America. Before coming to Brown, she was a faculty member at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss, which we will be discussing on this show. Theorizing Race in the Americas, Douglas, Sarmiento, Du Bois, and Vasconcelos, Race and the Politics of Solidarity, and the editor of Black and Indigenous Resistance in the Americas from Multiculturalism to Racial Backlash. Theorizing Race in the Americas was awarded the American Political Science Association's 2018 Ralph Bunch Book Award for the Best Work in Ethnic and Cultural Pluralism and the 2018 Best Book Award of the Race, Ethnicity, and Politics section of the American Political Science Association. Professor Hooker served as co-chair of the American Political Science Association's Presidential Task Force on Racial and Social Class Inequities, Inequalities, I'm sorry, in the Americas, and as Associate Director of the Teresa Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She has been a recipient of fellowships and awards from the National Endowments for the Humanities, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the Du Bois Institute for African American Research at Harvard, and the Advanced Research Collaborative at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Juliet Hooker.
All right. Juliet Hooker. How are you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I am. I am honored and uh, happy to have you on the podcast. Um, I think this is going to be a good discussion. Uh, you have a very thought provoking book. And uh, I want to, within the time that we have, really kind of delve into it a little bit and really pick your brain about about the content that's in the book. So what I'd like to do at the beginning of my interviews is uh, get your thoughts on a particular quote. So it's either something that you have written, something that you have said somewhere, or something that relates to the topic that we're going to discuss. So your quote is, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. What does that quote mean to you? So I think that, you know, this quote um, is really speaks to this issue that I talk about in the book in Black Grief, White Grievance, which is the fact that, um, you know, we have this, these expectations of how Black people need to present their problems, how they need to go about protesting um, in these, you know, extremely civil ways. And that one of the things that this does is that it prevents people from actually showing anger, right? Um, if you show, you're all, there's already these, you know, um, racist stereotypes about Black people out there where even when they're calm, they're assumed to be angry and threatening. And so part, one of the ways in which this, I think, works out in terms of how we look at Black people um, acting politically is that if, you know, other folks, especially, if, you know, if you think back to things like the, um, the Supreme Court, the hearings for Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, right, where he had been accused of, of sexual um, harassment and assault, and he was absolutely furious, right? He was able to display his anger and 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 you know quote him, you know quote himself in the the mantle of being a victim. Um, and I think one of the things that we see is that you know as soon as Black people express anger, you know justified anger at injustice, their claims are dismissed, right? It's used as a, as a you know um, as a way to to say you're you're being irrational you're not in control of your emotions or or even peaceful protests are then described as riots whereas as we know other forms of protests as in the case of January 6 in fact get whitewashed and described as you know uh, tourists visiting the capital so I think that quote for me is really important because it points to um, to this to the way in which you know, the reality is that racism, right, um, requires or it produces justified anger, right, because you're dealing with these unjust, unfair circumstances. But then because of the, the expectations um, that we have about how Black people can act politically, we don't allow Black people to express the full range of their emotions, even though others are allowed to to do so and still seen as legitimate political actors. 
So what led you to write this book at this time? So I started writing what became the first part of the book after the, um, the Ferguson uprising, you know, and seeing the militarized police response to those protests, the way that, you know, the anger and grief that Black people were feeling at the death of Michael Brown, um, and um, of course, was building on, you know, all the other um, instances of violence that had preceded it, that um, that there was, to me, it seemed, and even thinking about the ways in which um, those, uh, you know, those protests were critiqued um, by a lot of people, black and white, um, and thinking about how circumscribed, right, how limited the range was for the kind of activism that could reflect the outrage that people were feeling. And so I started thinking about this question of, of you know, of, of, of the activism that Black people do, how they actually end up doing this heroic work of taking right, the grief of, of the, the worst possible loss, losing a loved one, and then it becomes, um, you know, and turn it into this fuel for mobilization, for protest, to, you know, to demand justice for their loved ones. And so I started thinking about how grief is mobilized politically. And then of course, you know, in 2016, then you had the um, the Trump campaign and the ways in which they were using, right, this, this language of grievance, right? This idea that whites were being displaced as the dominant group in the country in the country, white men in particular, and that they had, you know, grievances that needed to be attended to. And I started to realize, you know, these things are happening simultaneously and they're not the same, but they're both responding in one sense to the worst possible, most devastating loss. And in other cases to, in the other case, to a perception of loss, right? Um, and so we need to, to think about them um, simultaneously. And that's how the book came about. So go into detail more about the uh, politics of loss. Yes. So when I talk about political loss, right, I'm talking about losses that not all losses, right? So we've all suffered loss. We've all, you know, um, lost a game or preferred candidate, didn't win an election or, um, you know, we've lost a job. And so, um, you know, loss is a universal human experience, but in political loss, what I'm talking about are, are losses that um, have to do with broader structures um, and with the political community as a whole, right? So if you think about, um, you know, in democracies, right? Um, citizens lose because not everybody can win. And so loss is a feature of our political system. Or if you think about um, ways in which people suffer losses because the state has failed to do certain um, things that it should, right? So if, if, if there are disasters that could have been prevented because you didn't have the right, you know, regulations or in cases of, of um, you know, of active actions by the state that create losses for people, right? So, so loss, political loss can be the result 
I argue, state action or inaction. And also we have losses, political losses that, um, that create obligations for us to attend to, right? So, so because we're all part of a political community, if there are people within the community who are suffering continuous losses, this creates a political obligation um, for us to try to, to change those circumstances. In the first chapter of the book, you discuss the concept, and pardon my lack of fluency in German, that's, that's my dad's forte, not me, uh, the concept of Liebenschrom. Break that down as to how it relates to white grievance here in America. Right. So the concept refers to the idea, right, which was um, used to justify the expansion of Nazi Germany to surrounding Eastern European countries, right? The idea that in order to survive, um, the German people needed, right, um, needed to have this, um, this space, right? So they needed to have control of these geographic areas because otherwise they were being threatened. And so part of how I use the, um, the concept is to explain, right, the way in which, um, you know, certain nationalisms, right, are predicated on this idea that there is going to be a future loss, right? There's a fear of something that is to come. And in order to somehow prevent that from happening, we get to, you know, to do this imperialist expansion in the present. And that's how I argue that white grievance works, right? There's this idea of an anticipatory loss, a loss that is to come that then justifies these you know, very um, extreme actions in the present to prevent that from happening. And so it's this kind of um, apocalyptic, really, um, sense of, of a loss that is unfolding and that then justifies really extreme policies in the present to um, supposed, you know, to, to um, prevent those supposed losses. Now, going into the second chapter of the book, you go into detail about the irony of black folks being the backbone of American democracy, while systemic efforts, <coughs> excuse me, are being made to strip black folks of their political power. What kind of dilemma does that put black folks in for the upcoming 2024 election? So one of the things that I, I talk about in the book is, is um, a cover that I, I don't know if, if, um, if your readers remember when um, Stacey Abrams was put on the cover of Vogue and the title was, Can Stacey Abrams Save U.S. Democracy? And this was before the 2020 election. But I think this is a really good example of this pattern, right? Where um, whenever election season run, um, comes around, people... Um, expect black voters to turn out to um, to vote right um, against racist candidates to vote um, in large numbers, even though, as we know, um, right, they are there are all of these efforts to prevent um, minorities, in particular, from being able to vote. So you get these stories about 
oh, you know, someone stood in line for eight hours and how amazing that was. Instead of saying, you know, it's crazy that somebody had to stand in line for eight hours in order to vote. Right. Why do we keep accepting this year after year? So for me, this is an example of this dilemma, right, where um, Black people are continually being asked to save U.S. democracy, right, to do this work of, of um, you know, being, um, of voting for people who stand for, you know, multiracial democracy. But at the same time, as we saw in the case of Stacey Abrams, right, they, their leadership isn't necessarily embraced. So we want the labor, but we don't necessarily want the political ideas, or we don't necessarily want um, want them in leadership roles. And we also keep expecting this labor over and over again without actually fixing, right, the issues with U.S. democracy. Yeah. And so in the context, from what I was reading, it's basically going to be a hard sell, right, to convince Black voters to save democracy this election. I, I think that's been kind of a general feel when you when you listen, whether it's Fox or MSNBC, CNN, whatever. And, and you know, even with the uh, Black Census Project, it's just, you're not, you're not getting that vibe from the Black community. They're not really buying into it. Is that kind of the way you know, having done research and putting this book together, do you, do you kind of feel that same vibe that the democracy argument is not selling in the Black community? Well, I think, so I think this is, this is the problem, right? So I think we are in a moment of, of, of you know, deep backlash, right? And so um, racist backlash against right these supposed gains that black people have been making right you know the the um, affirmative action in higher education has been disallowed um, it's folks or activists are now going after you know sort of programs for minority owned businesses or to you know to over um, to overcome inequalities in the private sector. So there is this real assault, I think, on, you know, people are trying to censor how we teach U.S. history to whitewash it. Um, And so there are all of these efforts, I think, that Black people are experiencing um, to really, um, you know, really, I think, um, attack these perceived gains by Black people. And at the same time, they're being asked once again to come out, right, and, 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 and vote and elect, um, you know, and, and, and save U.S. democracy from Trump. But once again, I think the problem is, okay, so what, are, what is going to be done to actually address the needs of Black people once the election is over, right? And this is, this is the, the pattern. Right. So um, I think the question is, how do we see the needs of black voters as central if they really are saving U.S. democracy as opposed to, you know, the tons of articles trying to think about, oh, you know, how do we persuade this Trump voter in the Midwest? Right. So there is a way in which I think, um, you know, the, the, 
there is a disconnect between this idea that, you know, black voters are really essential to saving U.S. democracy and then the attention to the needs of black communities. All right. Which is a perfect segue to this next question. What can be done to head off white backlash whenever African-Americans make political gains? That's that's something very personal to me. I mean, I look at uh, what happened uh, after, you know, when reconstruction took place, I look at what's happened in my lifetime after, uh, Obama became president and I, my mission really <laughs> in life politically is to head the backlash off before it starts again. So is, is there anything that can be done? This is a really good question. Um, so I think one, one, I don't, you know, and I, I don't necessarily have a, you know, a, a set of, you know, here's the three-step way in which we're going to solve this problem. But I guess one thing I would say is that I think, um, you know, often the way that, that we understand backlash is to say, you know, or the way in which it's framed is to say, oh, you went too far, you know, too soon. And, and so people are reacting because to the excesses of, of, of the moves towards, you know, um, racial justice. But I think part of the, the, the thing is, and, and Dr. King, you know, and other um, African-American thinkers have said this, is that racial justice is always untimely, right? That there's always going to be a sense that, um, um, that, that this isn't the right moment to press for those gains. So I think that if we understand that you know, that the pattern in U.S. history, as you say, has been that anytime there's some kind of advancement, you know, there is resistance, and that resistance, you know, um, manifests itself as backlash, that, you know, that, that I think it takes, it maybe can help take away some of this sense that, you know, that if we, if we try to make these changes in just the right way, that this will mean that they will be acceptable because there are some portion of, you know, of people for whom they will never be acceptable. I mean, I think we see, we're seeing this now where there are people who are saying, you know, if democracy leads to outcomes that I don't agree with, then they're willing to dispense with democracy, right? So I think, um, you know, part of of what we can say is, is, you know, is to advocate for, for racial justice um, for what's needed, be, uh, because there will always be backlash. And then I think the other thing that, you know, one of the things that I say in the book, and I, you know, um, is that part of what has to happen is that this isn't, this is not a problem of Black people. This is a problem of, you know, white citizens who need to learn to accept what they perceive as losses, right? That the problem of backlash is a problem of white grievance and that that is the real threat or the biggest threat to U.S. democracy right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, the, the, in the common vernacular, the phrase is get over it. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 like I said, that's just kind of my mission. I want to get to a point where the majority of the population gets up, you know, accepts that and, and keeps it moving forward. How does the 
how does the efforts of whitewashing or eliminating history uh, impair understanding of black grief and white grievance? So I think these struggles over how to teach history have been a, a, you know, a key area where we see these, um, these, um, these struggles over who has to bear loss and who refuses to accept loss actually playing out, you know, before you know, this moment in which we find ourselves where people are, you know, the, the sort of panic about critical race theory or the 1619 project and, you know, and the ways in which those are telling a more accurate, um, you know, history of the United States, you know, there were the efforts following the Civil War by, you know, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other organizations to really censor U.S. history textbooks and tell a version of the Civil War that omitted slavery, that you know presented slavery as a, this benevolent, you know, institution. And so I think these efforts to whitewash U.S. history, you know, are part of this pattern of that enables this refusal to accept loss, right? So, you know, this begins after Reconstruction when. We have the reconstitution of, of um, you know, white rule and um, and the refusal to allow multiracial government in the South, and so Black people are prevented until the Civil Rights Movement from full political participation. Um, and so I think that what we see is that the, you know, the effort to tell this whitewashed version of history enables this kind of um, you know, willful ignorance about the history of the country, which then allows people to feel um, to feel aggrieved and displaced when they're actually having to confront the fact that you know this is a multiracial country where everybody is has the right to to fully participate and have a say in um, in in the policies that are enacted by the government. And so I think that you know there. Are really actually um, very closely linked. Yeah. I, um, you know, I just think that it's really important um, because, you know, the modern parallel now to me is like Moms for Liberty uh, when you talk about the United, United Daughters of the Confederacy. And it just seems like it, ex it, it, you know, it exacerbates the frustration that we feel as black people that it's like, you know, it's like just, you know, history is history. So it's like, you know, let that ride. It's, it's all about what we do from this point forward that, that, to, that should be important. And, but, you know, it just seems like they, they don't care. It just, you know, they don't care about our feelings. They care about their feelings. And as long as their feelings are validated, then, you know, everything's okay. You know, I think one of the things that's actually really, um, really telling about those, you know, sort of parents, um, par this whole parents' rights movement and Moms for Liberty um, is that 
this isn't coming from kids, right? The kids are for the most part, right? And I think that in fact, it's a reaction to many young people, you know, young white people who join, you know, the protest against police violence in 2020 and who were really trying to wrestle with the, you know, the history of the United States. And it's, and, and the reaction is to say, we don't want them to actually try to come to terms with what the real history of the United States have been. Instead, we want to, you know, have indoctrinate them with this whitewash version of history that, that tells them, you know, there's nothing for you to wrestle with. So when you were writing this book and, and just being a keen political observer, how maddening is it for you to see the pattern that black grief is based on factual tragic circumstances while white grievance is based on misinformation and disingenuous interpretations? So I think that this is, this is really, you know, you just got to the, the crux of the, of the matter, right. Of the disparity, because, you know, this is, this is one of the things that I, I say in the book that, of course, these are not equivalent, even though there are two, um, two ways in which people are mobilizing around loss. And that's one of the things that I wanted to, to, to make really clear because what is so, I think, um, so difficult to deal with is the fact that despite the fact that some, so many of these losses are about things that you, you're like, why are people so upset about this, right? The things that, that people are, are upset about, you know, like, you know, there's a, um, you know, the casting in a Disney movie or, you know, um, you know, just, uh, just absolutely, you know, unimportant things. And yet people become enormously mobilized by them. And then part of what ends up happening, and this is, is, is really, um, you know, um, really a problem is that white grief often displaces right? Black. I mean, white grievance displaces black grief, right? So, um, so folks who are actually suffering real material deadly losses don't get the same level of attention or concern as folks who are actually, you know, having these anticipatory losses or, or feeling the sense of displacement um, when in fact they're still the dominant group you know, as a whole in the country, socially, politically, economically, even though, of course, you know, individual people may have, you know, more precarious circumstances, but, um, but that really is, I think, the, you know, the, the really maddening, um, you know, disparity that you see. Yeah, and I, I just, you know, Again, all I keep thinking about is the phrase, get over it. Um, let me let me ask you this last question. So in the conclusion of the book, the question is brought forward, what can we imagine for ourselves and the world? What have you personally imagined for black folks politically here in America? That's a really good question. Now I can say it's the hardest one for last. Um, so I think part of what I, I am hoping for, right, is that we can 
um, expand our political imaginations. And by that, I mean that, you know, um, one of the, you know, the, the arguments in the book is really about saying, you know, how do we think about what it is that racial justice entail? What do we think we need to preserve Black life, to have Black communities that thrive? How do we take those um, as the center of Black politics rather than this project of, of repairing white democracy, right? That, um, that, you know, has, that limits how we think about what Black politics should be because it has to be done in these particular ways in order to be palatable. So I think the real thing that I, you know, that I hope for is um, that, you know, that, that we'll think more broadly about what Black politics can be, but also, um, you know, that we can, um, that Black people can assert their full humanity, right? That you won't have to be political heroes all the time, that we get to um, to to have the full range of emotions and of political activism, um, and that it won't be in you know constrained and limited by these expectations. So, if people want to reach out to you, or you know want to be able to get the book and all that, tell them how they can do all those things. So you can, um, I have a website, juliethooker.com. You can contact me through that. The book is available through uh, the Princeton University Press website or Amazon. There's an audio version um, and uh, you can also order it through your local bookstore. Right. So Juliet Hooker, I am really, really glad that you wrote this book. Um I think it's for those of us who really want to understand the dynamics of the politics we're dealing with now, more so than just trying to absorb it from media. I, I think it's essential. Um, uh, it This is an audio podcast, as y'all know, but it's like visually uh, Sister Hooker, if she walked into a room, you would say, Oh, she seems like a nice lady. But when y'all read that book, she throws haymakers like Joe Frazier. I'm telling you, she this is a powerful <laughs> this is a powerful, powerful book. And I and I really appreciate you doing that. And I, I appreciate um you coming on the podcast to to highlight and talk about it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, and we're gonna catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. And so now, our final guest, Fatima Gilliam. Fatima Gilliam Esquire is an author, lawyer, consultant, public speaker, and entrepreneur whose career combines expertise in the law, diversity, human capital, leadership, stakeholder engagement, and negotiations. 
She holds a law degree from Columbia Law School, a master in public policy from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and an undergraduate degree from Wellesley College. Gilliam is the founder and CEO of the Azara Group, which provides diversity and inclusion, leadership development, negotiation, and strategy consulting services to Fortune 500 corporations, senior executives of billion-dollar businesses, and industry thought leaders. She has previously been featured in media, including CNBC's Power Lunch, NPR's The Brian Lehrer Show, Insider, and Yahoo Finance. Gilliam is a black woman whose family has been in the United States for nearly 400 years and fought in every American war, including the American Revolution and Civil War. She is a volunteer attorney for election protection and previously monitored vote counting in Florida. She began her career as a corporate attorney on Wall Street at Clearly, Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton LLP. Worked for Citigroup, overseeing campus diversity recruiting for all its U.S. businesses, and oversaw corporate partnerships as the head of finance and fundraising for North America for the Nobel Peace Prize winning United Nations World Food Program. Gilliam loves dancing, photography, bike riding, and swimming, and has participated in several charity marathons. Originally from California, she is an avid traveler and has lived in Granada, France, and South Africa. She currently resides in New York City. Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You, is her first book. And that's the book we're going to discuss on this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest, Miss Fatima Gilliam. All right, Fatima Gilliam. How are you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you on. Um, and we're going to be talking about your book. And uh, you, you race rules. <laughs> you, you want to break down some stuff to help some people out, I understand. So before we get started, what I well before the interview part, what I like to do is I have a quote that I throw at the guest, and it's either something that that person has said, something they have written, or might be in a book that you have written. So, your quote is just because I fight for my people doesn't mean I'm an enemy of yours. What does that quote mean to you? What it means is that, you know, advocating for racial equality, advocating for better treatment of people of color by white people doesn't mean that it's an attack on white people. Because I know that with my book, Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You, is that some people are going to feel uncomfortable. And, and when people feel uncomfortable, they feel like someone is coming for them. And that's not the intent. The intent is, is to explain things to people. Um, and in explaining, that doesn't mean that I'm against white people. What I am for is equality, and I'm for the advancement of my own people. 
All right. And uh, I think a lot of us have had to give that speech or, or make that statement at some point in time uh, in, in advocating for, for black folks in America. What was, what was the origin behind race rules? Why did you feel that you needed to write that? Was it a particular incident that happened that made you do it? Or was this like a, a conglomeration of life experiences that made you say, Hey, I need to write this book. Well, I definitely had an aha moment that was the catalyst for writing this book. So it was August of 2018, and I was watching the news, and it was another story of a Karen going viral for calling the police for no reason. And as I started to watch that news story, I thought about several things. I thought about, you know, my own lived experiences as a Black American woman. I thought about the questions that I get repeatedly in my you know, personal life from friends and then in my professional life, because I also focus on issues around diversity and inclusion and do consulting work around that. So I thought about the you know, rinse and repeat questions that, that people keep asking over and over again. And I also thought about the things that white people say around me when they don't realize I'm black, because I know this is audio recording here, but... I am extremely light-skinned. And so, but that doesn't mean I haven't heard ridiculous things or experienced racism myself. And so I thought of all these things together. And as I watched this news story, I said to myself, oh, white people need a manual and I'm gonna write that manual. So that's that's how the book became a thing. All right. so. There are 30 rules in this book. Why Why did you stop at 30? <laughs> well, it's like 30 plus a bonus because the conclusion, you know, is also sort of a rule too. <clears throat> I had actually written over 48 rules for the book, but, uh, you know, the book could only be so many pages. So I had to pick and choose the types of uh the various rules that I thought were the most compelling or interesting for the story that I was trying to share with, uh, with readers. And so I settled it at, you know, 31, 30 slash 31 race rules in the book. Um, what is your, cause there's some rules I'm going to try to pick your brain about, but what, what is your favorite passage in the book? What was, what was your favorite rule, I guess? So it's from my race rule number 22. And first, let me just tell your readers, like, what's, you know, what's the setup of the book, right? So race rules, which your black friend won't tell you, is a series of rules on lots of different topics. And it's very different from other books on racism in the sense that it gives advice, right? So there are a lot of people who write like an autobiographical book that may talk about themselves and their experiences and how that shapes their view of America and racism. Or it might be like an academic book or a history book. Um, and I think those are all really helpful to explain to people what racism is, but then what? Like what happens after that? And so in this book, in race rules, it's a, effectively a do's and don'ts written primarily for a white audience of, of things they should be doing and not do. And it's written in this sort of choose your own race knowledge adventure. If you want to understand tokenism, 
cultural appropriation, colorblindness, you know, you could hop to that chapter if you want to understand the N-word, taking a knee, voting rights, um, white welfare, which is a term that I've coined. Um, you know, you can hop to those types of chapters. Um, but my favorite passage is in Race Rule 22, where the rule is it's not personal when people of color don't want to talk to you about race. And, and I explain why that's the case. And then at the end, I end the chapter with this analogy. And so just to say, to clarify also, my you in my writing is, is I'm writing to a white person. So this is my, my, past, my favorite passage. What it's like talking to you about race. Let's put this in perspective. Recall life living in the pandemic. Do you remember that haunting feeling you felt that never went away, that the virus was lurking at every corner? You couldn't escape it because there were reminders everywhere, on the news, online, in social media, and when you saw your neighbors or people on the street. You felt a sense of omnipresence as you walked around, always on high alert, looking at others, seeing if they wore masks, looked ill or coughed. You noticed them and observed how they reacted to you. You were a constant fear of your death. Loved ones may die or did die, and you felt perpetual anxiety. Your mental health was impacted along with your physical health from the stress. You had trouble sleeping. You weren't even safe in your own home because the virus could come to your door. You didn't know if you could trust the government or if officials had your best interest in heart, unsure if they would do something to kill you. You felt powerless, as if there were nothing you could do to change things to make your life better since you weren't in control. You had to resign yourself to your circumstance, but you didn't want to accept your reality. You wanted to resist and somehow make things better. When you tried, you didn't succeed. That's what it's like living under racism every day, 24-7, 365. Racism is a pervasive, invisible force, just like COVID. There's no escape. It's constant, never a break or reprieve. It's isolating and marginalizing. It attacks your life, bank account, livelihood housing, health care, schools, and dinner table, and separates your family. You want the government to do something about it, but politicians want you to laissez-faire your way to non-solutions, absolving themselves of responsibility, willfully blind to its impact. You suck it up. You deal with big picture systemic issues. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Heal yourself. Pave your destiny. Avoid your own death or murder. Welcome to living like a black or brown person in America. But with racism, there's no vaccine coming. No magic pill to inoculate society. This is what it's been like since the 1500s. It isn't getting better. There are new strains, new waves, and invisible resurgences mutating, reinventing itself, seemingly dormant, but always there stalking, ready to strike and viciously kill. This is the reality. It's bleak. When you want to discuss racism, Sometimes people of color only want to discuss it with those who understand what they've gone through, not white folks who will trivialize things, which is akin to speaking to an anti-masker who berates innocent and defenseless store clerks. That's you questioning racism in their experiences. You're the anti-masker, anti-vaxxer in the conversation. When you come with covert microaggressions, overt aggression, a lack of knowledge, and a rejection of facts, now... Can you understand why no one wants to talk to you? They're already too busy trying to literally survive. So ladies and that's gentlemen, yeah, yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's, that's the tone of the book. It really is. Look, man, <laughs> you, you can't come at me 
this is the reason why I don't want to talk to you about this. And, 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 and that's a, that's a perfect example of really how the whole book vibes. Um, and if I could say this other thing too, right. Like yeah. in terms of what you're saying, like, you know, don't come with me. You know, I said in my writing that the you in my writing is a white person, right? This book is written to them to give them advice, but it's also helpful for people of color in two key ways. One is it helps bring words to their emotions and experiences, you know, to see how they, you know, in the written form, what they've experienced that can then enable them to have conversations about this or have talking points. And then the other critical way that race rules is helpful for people of color is it's sort of like a, you know, go away, leave me in peace book, right? So that white person in, at your job or in your family or in your neighborhood that keeps coming to you with questions and you're tired of these questions and you just want to go about your life, you can say, you know what? This lady answered all these questions. Why don't you get her book, read her book and let me go about living my life? Yeah. And, and, and it's something that's needed. And I'm glad you highlighted the fact that it, it's, it's a tool for us to be able to articulate, um, you know, how to say to somebody, you know, let's, let's not go there with this, or let me tell you how I feel, you know, cause some people, like you said, they don't want to talk about it cause they really don't know the words to say. Um, or they're exhausted. Well, yeah, yeah. The most, the most black folks are exhausted. Uh, explain the difference between prejudice and racism. Right. I have a rule where I say everyone is prejudiced, but not everyone is racist. We all are prejudiced, right? We're going to see someone and we're going to immediately make judgments and decisions about them and assumptions about them based on their race, their gender, um, you know, whether they're tall, short, what country they're from, a whole bunch of things. We're prejudging people. But prejudice is not automatically racism. There's a critical ingredient that is required to transition racial prejudice into racism, and that is power, collective power as a group. And so there are a lot of people that will say, well, you know, black people could be racist too. Mm, not in the context in the United States you know, maybe in some other country, but if we're analyzing it from the American social construct, black people uh, don't have the collective political power, financial power, economic power, a whole bunch of other layers of power for their prejudices against, you know, that they may have of, of white people for that to have any kind of systemic, institutional, uh, structural impact on white people. So we can be prejudiced, but we can't be racist, but they can be racist. Right. And, you know, I was taught uh, even more so that prejudice, you know, is goes beyond, you know, looking at other people. Cause it's like in, in Skinner's book or essay, um, BF Skinner, he talks about, you know, how, you might have a preference or, you know, you might have a prejudice against oranges and you, you like apples. Doesn't necessarily mean that apples are better than oranges in the overall scheme. It's just that that's your preference and 
for whatever reason you don't like an orange you don't like its taste you don't like the peel or whatever but it's like when you when you try to say okay well now we're going to ban oranges that that falls into what what we call racism it's like now we're going to make it tough for anybody else to get an orange just because of my prejudice towards them and so I mean that's that's basically what you're saying. You you are using prejudice in the context of how we view other people, but I mean we make we make judgments. Other people, but they're but they're also impacts, right? So like, let's say I see a police officer, mm-hmm. and I make a judgment, right? And a police officer makes a judgment about me. Like, let's just assume I'm browner skin than I am, right? And the other thing is, and this is something that also comes from the book too, because each race rule has an illustration that accompanies it. And so there's an illustration that depicts what I'm about to talk about, right? But like, you know, you can have a black person pulled over by the police and then the black person is gonna make assumptions about the police officer, about, you know, maybe they're gonna be violent, you know, maybe they're gonna shoot them, maybe they pull them over only because of race, right? So the black person is prejudging a white police officer, right? And that's prejudice there. And then the white police officer could be making assumptions and have prejudices about the black driver, right? So they're both prejudging each other. But here's a key difference. The prejudices that the driver has, the black driver, don't have fatal consequences for the police officer. Whereas the white police officer, if they're assuming that this person carries a gun, that they're a drug dealer, like buying into all kinds of racial stereotypes, that prejudice could result in the death of the black driver. Right. Cause it's the power that that officer has as opposed to the power that the driver doesn't have. And the role that he plays in society, assuming it's a male cop, but yes, the role of, uh, of being an enforcer of the law. Right. All right. So let's get into some of the rules. Now, what I did was they were like, about five rules that I picked out, picked to have questions, right? Okay, let's dig in. So the the first rule that I chose was rule number five. And, and the question I got out of that was, what do you mean when you say woke whites and Democrats can be some of our most, of the most dangerous racists? Yes, that is my white liberals chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Race rule number five. Because, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to do with this book is expand people's definition of what they think is racist, who's racist, and how racism shows up in society. And too often, people engage, excuse me, in exceptionalism. Right. Like the racism that's happening in the world is happening over there. It's happening in the South. It's happening in, you know, rural communities, wherever it is that they think it's happening, where they think it's not happening is in their neighborhood, in their home, at their job, which is a misconception. And so I want people to stop thinking of that way. And I want them to look internally. Right. So instead of it being like the person who shows up with an AR-15 to shoot up the supermarket of the black grocery store uh, customers, that's the racist, as opposed to the person who is a Democrat that, you know, votes for Democratic uh, candidates, 
who thinks they're doing all the right things, that shows up at a protest rally, that makes political campaign donations, that volunteers at a community organization, and then still is opposed to affordable housing, still supports tax uh, policy where uh, um, school funding is based on housing, you know, uh, their, their property tax, which then supports segregation. So to answer your question, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, your quote unquote average white person is more dangerous than the sort of Klansman, the extreme form of the Klansman is because the average person is more numerous. The average person is the one who co-signs on the status quo which maintains a racialized caste system in the United States. That is why they are more dangerous. And at the same time, they don't see themselves as a problem. So they never engage in the critical self-analysis to ever evolve and challenge the, the decisions that they're making as to whether or not they are negatively impacting people of color and whether or not they're upholding white supremacy through their choices, actions, and deeds. Yeah. And the term that we use a lot in-house and in other discussions was paternalistic liberalism, right? That is like the white father is going to take care of you. That, you know, you, you black folks, y'all can fight your battles and, and make your voices heard. But if, you know, it's going to be the white voice that empathizes with you that's going to be able to get it done. And that's been a fight that, you know, when I explain people, when I was in the legislature, it was like there were three groups because everybody says, well, you were on the Democratic side. No, there were white Democrats, white Republicans, and then us, the Black Caucus. And there were a lot of times where, you know, white Democrats and us sided together, but there were times when we had to go up against them uh, in order to get some stuff or maintain some stuff for black folks. So, uh, you know, and, and that's where we would get that paternalistic. Well, but we know better of what you need and we'd have to buck up on them. So that's why that rule stuck out with me because it just brought flashbacks of a lot of legislative debates that I had to have. Um, rule number eight, the question that comes out of that one is what is the hidden agenda of neutral on its face? my voting rights chapter um, where the rule is voting restrictions are racist. Um, neutral on its face. You know, the, the interesting thing is how positions, viewpoints, language is weaponized and turned on people and organizations and even laws to turn them on their head so that they can engage in some sort of racist objective, right? And one example is how it plays out in voting rights. So neutral on its face is where something is sort of like, okay, well, we're not going to say in the law that Black people can't vote. But instead, we're going to come up with, you know, some sort of general guideline that really only negatively impacts you know, people of color, right? So like an example could be like in the Dakotas, uh, I don't know if it's North Dakota or South Dakota, but you have a lot of uh, Native Americans that live on uh, reservations. 
and the land is really spread out. And so people don't have traditional addresses in some areas. And a lot of the people will just have their mail go to a PO box. So if you want to disenfranchise Native American voters in, say, South Dakota or whichever Dakota it is, then you come up with a law that says everyone that registers to vote has to have a street address and can't have a P.O. box address. So it looks neutral. It's saying, well, no, we all have to have street addresses. But then what is the actual impact of that law? The impact is that... Native Americans who need to use P.O. boxes can't vote. And then it dis, you know, disproportionately disenfranchises the P.O. box people. And then it also disenfranchises people that might be homeless as well because they have no street address to claim. So that's an example of neutral on its face, but it has a clear intention and impact of marginalizing and disenfranchising Native American voters. Yeah, and I, I don't sneaky. know. Very sneaky. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if this book was bringing back trauma for me as far as my legislative experience, but I just, when you talk about that, we were talking about the voter ID legislation and, and, and people were saying that we were extreme when we were saying that it was a poll tax on people. And, uh, you know, they were like, it's not a poll tax. Like, well, no, not in the poll tax, like which I used to do back in the day, but if I'm 80 years old and I don't drive, I don't need a driver's license. I don't have any credit cards. I don't, I don't need a driver's license, but you're going to make me get one so I can go vote. And that's like 20, 30, 40 bucks. All depends on what state you're in. Right. So, you know, and then Mississippi kind of, because of the debates that we had, the, the state of Mississippi basically paid for people that didn't have a license to get a voter ID card. It's like free of charge for them once they did it, but it was because we, we kept pushing that issue. Then they said, well, we can eliminate that by just putting in the budget to make sure that folks that don't have a driver's license can get one for free. Right. But that's what, that's what. So that's an, that's an example of one of these sort of neutral things, right? So if you know that implementing a voter ID requirement is going to product, you know, disproportionately impact people of color, young people, old people, low-income people, and you really don't want those people to vote, then you come up with this voter ID requirement when voter fraud really is not a thing, right? You have a greater statistical chance of being struck by lightning than for voter fraud, you know, to happen. And if people aren't out there trying to pretend to be somebody else, then why put these layers on anyway? When you know the impact is going to turn people away from being able to exercise their right to vote. So again, neutral on his face, but you know, surprise, surprise, guess who it hits. Right. And and along with the illustrations that you have, you have tables that kind of go along with certain rules. So it's like you list like certain things that would Jim fall Crow under Kelly. versus Jim Crow 2.0. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Rule number 10. The question from there is what about our collective socialization that makes a knee-jerk reaction like comparing January 6th to Black Lives Matter protests commonplace? Um, say the question again, please. What, what, a, makes the, what, what about our collective socialization makes a knee-jerk reaction like comparing January 6th 
to Black Lives Matter protests commonplace. And that was under Rule 10. Yeah, that's my uh, um, rule about false equivalencies of comparing Black Lives Matter to the January 6th, and one being protests and the other one being an insurrection. Um, you know, when people use these false equivalencies, especially when we're talking about something like Black Lives Matter, is they're trying to come up with reasons to delegitimize the core uh, concerns and grievances of people um, pushing for Black Lives Matter, right? So they're going to bring up something which really is not even the same, right? An insurrection and say, well, well, there was all this violence and one had violence and the other had violence and isn't it the same? Well, actually, something like over 70% of Black Lives Matter protests have no violence right. whatsoever. You know, and I include some of the statistics in in the book. Um, or they'll say, well, one is a protest and another. No, because one is pushing for change within the confines of the legal structure, <clears throat> you know, exercising your free speech so that you can push for laws that are going to protect people's civil rights. Whereas the other one is, I'm trying to upend democracy and stop, uh, you know, stop the, um, you know, valid val validation of votes. So I don't know if I really answered your question. Well, let me let me uh, say it this way: Why? What is it in a, when I say socialization? What is it in our American teaching that or culture that allows these? false equivalencies to not only exist, but to um, be prevalent in the discussion? Why, why are they allowed? What, what about our culture they're allows allowed, it? Yeah. They're allowed because the core thread is not wanting to really tackle issues around race. So it's coming up with a whole bunch of excuses to truly confront some real inequities in American society. So it's delegitimizing, um, gaslighting, uh, false equivalencies, a whole bunch of things to, in essence, say what you're really complaining about. I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to, you know, come up with these BS analogies that are not quite applicable so that we don't have to get to the core heart of it. Because at the core heart of what this is about is not wanting to upend a white supremacist caste system, which is America's social construct. All and right. that is too threatening for people. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're up against it, but I got two more questions. And it's, it's two more rules right. that I wanna, wanna hit. Rule number 15. What is Hugh Jacking and blackfishing? <laughs> okay. Well, Hugh Jacking, so I'll say, you know, the book has a glossary of terms. And some of the terms in the book uh, I invent. And Hugh Jacking is a term that I invented. So Hugh spelled H-U-E, you know, like the color of something. And, you know, Hugh Jacking is, is what happens, you know, a lot of times when, like the example I give in the book is 
you know, a white person who's, you know, maybe come back from the Caribbean on vacation with their tan or they went to a tanning salon and then they love to come up and put their arm next to you and be like, oh, my God, you we're the same color or I'm darker than you, you know, <laughs> which I find really annoying, especially as a light skinned person. But what it is, is somehow trying to fetishize black and brownness, somehow trying to create some sort of similarity um, but our lives are not the same in terms of uh, our experiences and discrimination. And I think it's racially offensive because it's a form of erasure. Now, blackfishing are people like Kim Kardashian, right? So it's like I say in the book, they want all the rhythm, but not the blues. So they want like, you know, it's changing your body or your physical appearance, whether that's, you know, lip injections, tanning, and it's uh, a form of an extreme form of cultural appropriation, but doing it in a way that really plays on stereotypes of what people think blackness is, what the culture is, and what that physically looks like. So it's like a big butt and, uh, you know, changing your body and it's mostly black fishing is a lot of times done by um you know influencers and then they're also monetizing it like the kardashian family well i'm dating myself but the first time i ever heard the term cultural appropriation was when bo derrick made that movie 10 and she oh, came and she came yeah. out with the with the with the braids and and you know, and everybody and was saying was like, she white was. White women invaded braids. Yeah, white I, women invented braids. And it was like she was the most beautiful woman on the planet, and da da da, this, that, and the other. And black women were like going, "Really, really?" And, you know. So that was, I was young, but it was like that was the first time I heard that. So this has been going on and for a long had a time. Sunburned scalp. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Probably, <laughs> probably needed to put some SPF protection on that scalp with those braids that she had. But yes, that is a form of appropriation. And then it becomes beautiful when it's done by white people. So that's the other piece of cultural appropriation and say black fishing is that it is only desirable right? Blackness, black, or what people think blackness is, the features are only attractive and desire, desirable when they're attached to white bodies. But that same look, that same, you know, uh, feature or way of dressing or doing one's hair is less desirable. So Bodera could have the braids. Maybe Bodera could even show up at Goldman Sachs with her braids when she comes back from a vacation at a five-star hotel in the Bahamas. But uh, the black coworker, she can't show up with the braids. Right. All right. Last rule that uh wanted to get a question from, which I think is the most important. Why is it white folks' job to dismantle racism? Yes. Yes, that's number uh, 30, racial number 30, I think. That it's and the rule is it's white folks' job to dismantle racism because they invented it, right? So it's really it's very difficult to dismantle structures that you had no part in creating, but somehow oppressed you. So why is it the job of oppressed people to try to deconstruct and dismantle uh, systems that are oppressing them? They're not going to be able to achieve it. Plus, people of color are not in all white conversations um, around issues 
around race or things that impact power all of the time. So I say the people that invented it need to dismantle it for it to ever really have a chance at being deconstructed so that we can put an end to intergenerational racism. All right. So the book is called Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, how can people buy the book? Go ahead and make your plug. Well, people can find the book anywhere where they buy books. Um, and But I also will encourage people to uh, support a local Black-owned bookstore and, and buy the book through there. And if they don't carry it, ask them to carry it. Um, but so they can get it anywhere they, they find books. And then they can find me uh, by by going to, you know, FatimaGilliam.com. And that's where people can also find my social media handle. So that's F-A-T-I-M-A-H-G-I-L-L-I-A-M.com because people tend to forget the H. All right. Fatima Gilliam, um, thank you <laughs> for coming on. And more importantly, thank you for writing this book. Um, I really hope that uh, it's something that can be used to, uh, I don't know about people in my generation, uh, but younger folks, I think, I mean, you want to have hope, right? But I, but I really think that is this is a, a book that, that needs to be circulated around people that are open-minded and want to really have a discussion uh, about, you know, I just, when, you, when I talk about trauma, I just think about all those racial reconciliation meetings I went through in the early 2000s, right? And, and a lot of these rules we couldn't say at these meetings, which didn't lead, of course, didn't lead to any reconciliation. So I really appreciate you putting it in, in written form. Uh, I wish that you could have done all 48, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll work with these 30. And thank you so much for doing that. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to share the message of the book. And if people get the book and gift it to the people in their lives, then if it's popular, then there could be more books. There could be more race rules books out there and those other rules can get out there too. All right. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right. And we are back. So in closing, the new Brownies book and Black Grief, White Grievance, you can buy those books right now. They've been out since 2003, 2023, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, it's still relatively new, but they're out. Now, Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You, is coming out at the end of this month, at the end of January. So the first two books, New Brownie's book and Black Grief, White Grievance are already out. You can go get those. And Race Rules, What Your Friend Won't Tell You, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You, I'm sorry, that's coming out at the end of January. So be on the lookout for that one. All right, we wanted to get Miss Gilliam on before the release of that book. All right, so that's about it, guys. Um, I uh, 
I hope that you enjoy these guests. I hope that you go out and buy these books um, because, you know, as I was talking to them, despite all these efforts to try to ban books and deny our history and all that stuff, we've got some black authors that are putting some quality stuff out there. I have had the privilege of highlighting several of them as well as other books by allies of the black community, you know, because knowledge is power. And if we're going to save our democracy, if we're going to improve on our way of life, then we have to embrace that knowledge is power. Malcolm X said that the passport to the future is education. So we've got to educate ourselves to create a better future for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, and for generations to come. So support these black authors. Support reading books, whether you do it with a hardcover or Kindle or Audible or whatever you do. However you get a hold of those books, please do that. Because we need to be thoroughly educated. Let the other side be ignorant and deal with misconceptions and half-truths. We have to be grounded in knowledge in order for us to succeed, in order for us to thrive. All right. On that note, until next time.